I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 48 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. In the middle of Matthew's biography of Jesus, we learn the awful fate of John the Baptist, arrested and executed shamefully. If this is what happens to the one who prepares the way for the king, what will happen to the king himself? This haunting story acts as a reminder still today that the way of Jesus will always be an affront to the powers that be. All right, once you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Anton Chekhov was a Russian playwright who in the late 1800s proposed a, a literary principle that we now call Chekhov's gun. And the literary principle, in Chekhov's own words, is this. Remove everything that has no relevance to the story. If you say in the first chapter that there is a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter, it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. <laughs> now, of course, this is one writer's principle. It's not a hard and fast rule because, you know, art has few or no rules. But Chekhov's gun has become an enduring bit of wisdom uh, for many a writer since. Now, of course, Chekhov didn't make it up in the pure sense. He just articulated it in a specific and helpful way. And the biblical authors actually adhere to the Chekhov's gun principle for reasons that are artistic in nature, but also ideological and pragmatic. So disciples of Jesus down throughout history with their rabbi have always believed that the scriptures, this library of writing that we call the Bible, is inspired or breathed out by God. Meaning, in the simplest sense anyway, that God is the co-author of the scriptures. He told human authors what to write somehow, and they wrote it. So in this sense, there's not a detail wasted. Everything is as God intended. And since God is an artist, uh, it's often clear and beautiful, but sometimes it's opaque and ugly. Sometimes it's uplifting, but sometimes it's dark and depressing. And it's all about so much more than simply do this, don't do this. It's a story. Primarily, the Bible is narrative. And disciples of Jesus have also always believed that God did not like puppeteer his human authors. He didn't put them into a trance where they just, uh, you know, wrote down, their hand was moving, I don't know what's going on. He, he allowed them to have their personalities, their worldviews, their opinions, their agendas, even their artistic flair. They have something that they want to say. And so in that sense, the writing in the scriptures is doubly purposeful. But there's a pragmatic piece as well. See, in the ancient world, not everyone could read or write, and few people enjoyed access to ink and papyrus. So you can't be frivolous with those things. You have to write exactly what is most crucial for the text. Everything is there for a reason. So take Matthew's biography of Jesus, for example, a first century account of history's most noteworthy figure. Historians and Bible scholars, whether they follow Jesus or not, all agree that the artistic craftsmanship of Matthew's gospel, as we now call it, is a staggering literary achievement. Now, we sometimes think of Matthew like 
it began as like a, you know, an ancient notepad for a scatterbrained biographer, and Matthew just tells jumbled stories. Some of them are really clear, and others are vague, and they seem to be in some random chronological succession, and then there it is, the Gospel of Matthew. But that actually couldn't be farther from the truth. Matthew's architecture of this biography is complex and sophisticated with a discernible literary format to best serve his artistic and ideological purposes. So if you've been tracking over the last couple of years as we've been teaching through Matthew, you've already seen the way that Matthew creates motifs. Um, He raises questions, and then he answers them with more questions. And then he draws the reader in only to frustrate them with this provocative central character called Jesus. And I think it might be his way, Matthew's way of saying, this is kind of what it was like to be with the man, his magnetism, his compassion, his love, but also his divisiveness and his exclusivity and his high ask and high cost. Jesus led with this invitation, come, die, then follow me. So a man who says that kind of thing needs an equally shocking biography to chronicle his life. And Matthew is consistently monitoring and reporting on the way that people react to Jesus. It's one of the primary themes of the biography. Will they accept him or will they scorn him? Do they warm to him or do they push him away? Who can persevere the road of discipleship? Not the religious leaders we've learned so far, not even his own family, at least not where we're at in the story. Many of his followers begin with passion only to walk away as the road beneath them becomes increasingly cumbersome and difficult and uphill. And with each new character, significant or fleeting, Matthew honors the Chekhov's gun principle. Each of them is there for a reason, building to something. And one of the more significant instances of this principle, Chekhov's gun in action, is the story of a man called John the Baptizer, or John the Baptist. So tonight, let's begin with a flashback to Matthew chapter 3. Let's read beginning with verse 1. It says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven has come near. This, John, is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So, John the Baptist, like Jesus, was a figure that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And like Jesus, his birth was foretold by angels. The great significance of his life was known to his parents before he was even born. Even his birth came kind of by miraculous events because his parents had been old and barren and then they can suddenly have a child. And his role, John's, was always and only prepare the way for the Messiah. You will be the harbinger. You will let people know. You'll go before him and herald the imminence of his arrival. But unlike the Old Testament prophets, John actually got to see the Messiah with his own eyes. And more than that, skip down to verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to teeter him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And you come to me. Verse 15, Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. So John 
understood that Jesus of Nazareth was the one for whom he had been preparing the way, so to speak. In John's gospel, John the Baptist actually points at Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God. And then later, when Jesus begins to baptize people himself, John offers one of the Bible's most beautiful, poignant quotations, he must become greater, I must become less. So John knows that Jesus is the Messiah, but as with many characters in the gospel stories, even John, the very person sent to direct attention to Jesus the King, is confused when Jesus is not who he expected Jesus might be. So turn over to Matthew chapter 11, just a page or two to the right, a few pages to the right probably, Matthew chapter 11. Let's read uh, beginning with verse 2 of Matthew 11. When John, who was in prison at this point in the story, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? So in the story, Jesus tells them to go back and tell John all the things they've seen. He says, tell John what I've been doing. I've been preaching the good news to the poor. I've been healing the sick, raising the dead. Tell John about all that. It's almost like he's saying, you tell me if the Messiah is here or not. But then to the crowds, he turns around and he says something a bit more personal about John. Skip down to verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving to give John Jesus' message, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. To Jesus, John is the greatest, most important person in the world prior to the inbreaking reality of the kingdom of God. He was prophesied, he was promised by angels, he was born in a miraculous way, he was entrusted with one of the greatest honors in human history, and he even got to baptize Jesus himself. But Jesus wasn't acting like a Messiah, at least not the one that John was anticipating. He hadn't overthrown the oppressors. He didn't seem to be preparing a revolution at all, actually. Rome continued to rule over Israel. Israel continued to be oppressed. Where was the king? Where was the kingdom? And John's faith wavered to the degree that he had to send someone to ask, are you even the guy? And in Matthew's gospel, that's the last we've heard of John until tonight. So finally, let's pick up where we left off in Matthew's biography of Jesus with the opening of chapter 14. John chapter, or Matthew chapter 14. Lots of Johns and Matthews. It's a whole thing. This is the only story in Matthew's gospel in which Jesus is not present. Let's read beginning with verse 1 of chapter 14. <clears throat> At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. So pause. You're reading this for the first time, and this is a punch to the stomach. Matthew, without bringing us up to date at all, reveals that John is now dead by way of inference. So you're thinking, wait a minute, what the heck happened? Look down at verse 3. 
Now, he flashes back, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, Herod, it's not lawful for you to have her. So let's unpack some background on this character called Herod. Now, Herod was a kind of quasi-part Jewish ruler installed by the Roman Empire to govern the region of Galilee. Now, for a variety of reasons, the Jewish people didn't care for him very much. He wasn't truly Jewish to begin with. He worked for the oppressors, you know, that sort of thing. It's not a, not a popular thing to do. But John's critique of Herod was about something really specific. Herod had actually had an affair with and then married his brother's wife, which was a direct violation of the Torah. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am Yahweh. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> pretty clear. So Herod had divorced his first wife, had an affair with his sister-in-law, and then married her. And it was such a well-known controversial act that the historical record actually shows that the father of Herod's first wife had initiated a border war with Herod as a result of his betrayal. So everyone knew about it, including John the Baptist. But why is John picking on Herod about this thing of all things? Herod was already unpopular. There were a variety of reasons to critique him. Why this? Well, interestingly, we know from the historical records that Herod had hoped to be appointed by Rome as more than just the governor of a region of Galilee, but the king of all Israel. And John knows that there's another king called Jesus, and it's not Herod. This dude who sleeps with his sister-in-law and marries her in flagrant defiance of the Torah is supposed to be the king of God's people? Give me a break. That's John. So John calls him out. He's a fraud. Just look at his life. Forget this dude. He's nothing like the Messiah. So it's not just Herod's like bruised ego that got John locked up. It's a threat to Herod's ambition to be appointed and accepted as the king of Israel. Does that make sense? Great. So to silence John the Baptist, Herod throws him in jail. Keep reading. Verse 5. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Verse 6. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod. Now, uh, birthdays in the ancient world were actually pagan celebrations. How about that? So there you go, conservative Christian culture, in with the jack-o'-lanterns and out with the birthday cakes if you want to be consistent. <laughs> but it's true. So the idea was that on a birthday, men would get drunk, and then they would hire a prostitute for the party to perform erotic dances or lap dances or even worse than that. But this story is particularly twisted because the one dancing is Herod's stepdaughter, and historians believe that she was likely 12 or 13 years old at the time. So Herod actually has one messed up family tree. Take a look at this. Um, let me try to explain it for a second. Herod's father, um, Herod's father is actually the Herod from the Christmas story, the one who commissions the slaughter of the babies, so it's already awful. And he, he is married to 10 women um, and has 10 sons, three of whom he murders, his sister, Salome, had a daughter named Bernice and then married one of Herod's ten sons, who was also her cousin. And they had a daughter named Herodias, and she grew up and married her uncle Philip, with whom she had a daughter. Then she had an affair with her other uncle, who's the Herod in tonight's story, or Herod Antipas, if you know the story, before whom she offered her daughter for erotic dances at her uncle's birthday party. So... In other words, Herod is married to a woman who is also his sister-in-law and niece, 
And he's getting an erotic dance from her daughter, who is also his niece, and who is likely 12 or 13 years old. So in other words, it's not good. This is an extremely icky, disgusting story. But the story gets worse, actually. Gotta love the Bible. Verse 6. On Herod's birthday, let's go back to where we were, verse 6. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath, oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here, on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. So, the dancing girl, who is likely 12 or 13, is offered a gift from what we think is her aroused, drunk uncle ruler, and she doesn't know what to do, I'm sure, so she goes to ask her mother. And her mother is seething with bitterness. She's been humiliated by John the Baptist. In fact, um, Mark's gospel says that she nursed a grudge against John the Baptist. She herself was made the subject of Herod's discrediting. It wasn't just Herod that John took down. It was the fact that he was married to her. So she's obviously taken it very personally. But remember, Herod didn't want to kill John. He was afraid of what the people would do if that happened. So what's he going to do? Verse 9, the king was distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, there were all sorts of people around who heard him say it. He ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. So it's not a happy story. Um, but there's a lot here. One of the reasons this story stands out is because in it, two women participate in something awful, which is actually pretty noteworthy in the Gospels. See, in the first century, women weren't exactly understood as valuable. They certainly weren't thought of as equal to men under any circumstances. And the Gospels were written into a hyper-patriarchal culture in which women were often silenced and bought and sold and traded as goods, and in many cases, legally incapable of making their own decisions. And yet, get this, the four Gospels are filled with all sorts of people rejecting Jesus, right? So it's a common theme, but not one of them records a woman outright rejecting Jesus. Instead, women are more often made the heroes in the story. One scholar writes about how this makes tonight's story interesting, saying this, the women in this story are unique. No woman is reported to have denied Jesus in the Gospels. In the Synoptic Gospels, it is women, not men, who wait at the crucifixion who watch at the burial, and who visit on Easter. The closest women get to being bad in the Gospels is here, at the beheading of John. And even here, the men are the primary villains. One of the two women depicted is an accomplice at best, and the other one is a victim. And if you recall, tonight's story is the second in a small collection of what scholars call the rejection narratives. So last week, we read this really interesting story in which Jesus' hometown, his own family, refused to believe in him. And in that story, it's based on a kind of rationalizing the situation. So Jesus shows up, he teaches, he starts to do miracles, and they're like, wait a minute, this dude was just here. He's a stonemason. He's not a, a great teacher. He's Mary's kid. He's Joseph's son. We know this guy. He can't possibly be the king of Israel. He can't be. So then Matthew transitions to a new kind of rejection. And this one is not like the simple local villagers of Nazareth who will not welcome the kingdom for their rational excusing it away. This is power and authority who will not welcome the kingdom because of the greed for position, because of resentment, because of lust. So in other words, 
disobedience to all the things that Jesus has taught in his Sermon on the Mount. That's what gets John the Baptist killed. The rejection of the scriptures, bitter anger, revenge, hatred, lust, adultery, even oaths. And just as Matthew was building out excitement for the first half of the gospel, romanticism, beauty, the thrill of the kingdom, people lining up to accept Jesus, now he's combating his own narrative with rejection after rejection after rejection. But there's also an interesting layer of foreshadowing and of Chekhov's gun, actually. Scholars note the similarities between John and Jesus. And if you know the story, they're actually cousins. They're both promised prophets from the Old Testament. They both have public and divisive ministries. Both of them have a bold message that calls the old way of life into question, that challenges those who claim to have ultimate authority. And look what happens to John. He spoke the truth committed no crime. He was arrested and executed in a messy, humiliating tangle of anger and lust for power. And then he's dead. His disciples come and take his body and bury him. In fact, scholars note that compared to the other accounts of this story, Matthew seems to have not only abbreviated the story, but redesigned it in order to draw the reader's attention to John as what they call a Jesus prototype. John told the truth, Herod had disobeyed the Torah. He didn't make that up. And he wasn't the true king. And because John told the truth, he was sent to prison. In prison, John began to lose hope. He sent his own disciples to ask Jesus point blank, listen, are you him or not? Because if you are the Messiah, now would be a great time to lead an uprising. And you can hardly blame the guy. N.T. Wright says it this way, no doubt John looked forward eagerly to the day, not long now, when Jesus would confront Herod himself, topple him from his throne, become king in his place, and get his cousin out of prison and give him a place of honor. But does Jesus lead an uprising in the story? No. Does John get out of jail? No. He dies there because of a gross offer made during a drunken, incestuous lap dance. It's actually disgraceful humiliating. And now, knowing this, think about why Matthew placed this story here, right in the middle of his biography, as enthusiasm for Jesus has begun to transition to the rejection of Jesus. Passive pushback is becoming hostile scorn of Jesus. And now, in the middle of all that, John, the prophet who prepares the way for the Messiah, is suddenly beheaded for no good reason at all, his head is carried out on a plate, and his disciples, presumably devastated, have to come gather his headless corpse just so he can have something like a proper burial. If this is what happens to the one who prepares the way, what is going to happen to the Messiah himself? And to continue down that line of questioning, what will happen to Jesus' followers and so there are two haunting takeaways built into this really sad, really disturbing story. The first is that the kingdom message will always be an affront to the powers that be, to all powers that be. John got in trouble for pointing out that Herod, wannabe king of the Jews, didn't even keep the Jewish law. But John's concern wasn't to make political power adhere to his religious ethics. John's concern was just letting everyone know this person is not the true king. Look at his life. 
He's not even concerned with the things of God. He's a fake. And this prefigures Jesus, who also gets into trouble for speaking truth to power and who is executed as an enemy of the state. The same would prove true for future followers of Jesus down throughout church of history, even to this very day. Now, today, you and I, as like modern Western American disciples of Jesus, we run virtually zero risk of actual persecution, let alone imprisonment. But the kingdom message is at odds with political power, as it has ever been, and it always will be. And you have to think about it like this. All governments of the world exist in a broken world to, in theory, reduce chaos by coercing behavior. And I don't say that in a pejorative sense. They, just, they do what they do. Meaning the state's job is to make rules and to threaten you with punishment should you consider breaking those rules. Some governments do this good, as good as a government can do anyway. Others decidedly less so, but that's what they do. That's not how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God never functions with power over others, never coerces behavior with the threat of punishment. The kingdom of God is about the renewal of all things through self-sacrificial love, even the love of enemies. Political power, by design, cannot function with enemy love. So there can never be any kind of, quote-unquote, Christian government, Christian state, Christian country. They operate under fundamentally different and opposing presuppositions. And all political powers of the world expect and require allegiance. Now, um, I have a friend from England, and when he became a U.S. citizen, he was telling me that he was required to take this oath, you know, that I didn't have to take because I was born here. <laughs> And, uh, and it has lines like these, uh, where you say things like, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any blah, 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 state sovereignty that I will support and defend the Constitution, laws of the United States against all enemies, um, foreign and domestic. I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required. And he was like, man, as a disciple of Jesus, how the heck am I, how can I possibly say this stuff? Because the kingdom of God will always be at odds with the kingdom of political power. Now, um, I'm 35, relatively young. I know I look much younger. Um, <laughs> in, my, in my short lifetime, I've never experienced a more panicked, hostile, vitriolic political landscape than the one in which you and I live today. It's insane. It's like all, all outright outrage hysteria. And there, there is quite a bit to be upset by, for sure, as there ever is with any political landscape. And disciples of Jesus, uh, many of them in justifiable distress, have begun to speak out against political corruption, things like sexism and misogyny and racism, because all of those things belong to the devil. But the greater truth looming over all of it bears equal repeating to the right and to the left and to the gray area in between. And, and the truth is this, no matter who is in political power, they are not the king. Jesus of Nazareth, is always an only king. All of our allegiance is always and only for Jesus. And yes, the New Testament encourages disciples of Jesus, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with political power. If and when you can, just follow the rules, get along, pray for those in power, whether they're grotesque and corrupt or whether they're charming and intelligent and admirable, pray for them just as you would pray for your enemies. But they are not the king. And the way of the state does not work like the kingdom of God, so inevitably, the way of Jesus will, at least at times, grate against the way of political power. 
And when it does, we are to choose the way of Jesus every time. And this is part of what it means to speak and live truth before power, just like John, just like Jesus. And when you do, there will always be a price to pay. For you and me, it will likely not be something like imprisonment or significant persecution, but there's still a price. Um, Last August, I believe it was, the far-right white nationalist rally, the whole tiki torch thing that happened in Virginia or something like that, ignited this firestorm of conversation and debate amongst all sorts of political and church leaders all over the world. And I was, you know, sifting through some of it. It was a lot to read. But one thing stuck stuck out to me, and it was a a response from Beth Moore, who's a well-known Southern Baptist author and speaker. And she said this on social media. It's very simple. She said, we cannot renounce what we will not name. It's called white supremacy, and it is from hell. Call it, condemn it. Now, to you and me, uh, this may seem a little like, duh, yeah. But believe me, in Beth Moore's context, the South, a Southern Baptist, even as a female leader amongst Southern Baptist men, this is seriously punk rock stuff that Beth Moore said. Now, notice that the tweet is in clear reference to a politically charged cultural moment. I think it was like the next day or something like that. But what she's saying is clear. It's undeniable kingdom truth. It's not up for debate if you are a disciple of Jesus. And I remember saying this and thinking, right on, Beth, heck yeah. But then just beneath it, there was this response. Christians can do without your anti-Trump tweets. It does nothing but create even more division. Now, Beth Moore's clear kingdom statement was immediately received as an affront to political power because ultimately, Beth is proclaiming that she belongs to a higher ethic, a higher authority, a truer king than the infighting of political melodrama. So take it how you will, I'm with Jesus. That's what she was saying. Regardless of when and how it communicates as a rebuke to political power or not, I'm with Jesus. And this is true on both sides of the aisle. Live Jesus' lifestyle of enemy love, of nonviolence, of advocating for the oppressed and the marginalized, standing against racism and sexism and misogyny, and you will become an affront to those on the right of the political spectrum. But if you live in obedience to the sexual ethic of Jesus and the scriptures and embrace self-denial and submission and sacrifice, if you uphold the exclusive lordship of Jesus and the sanctity of life both inside and outside the womb, and you will become an affront to those on the left of the political spectrum. Believe me, to get yourself into this kind of trouble, you don't need a tweet, you don't need a picket sign, you don't need to argue with your uncle at Thanksgiving or whatever, you don't even need to go out of your way to bring anything up. All you have to do to find yourself at odds with the powers that be is continue to follow Jesus faithfully. Because in all of it, you are living into a deeply controversial truth, and that is that there is only one true king, one true kingdom, and it's Jesus and the kingdom of God, and all of my allegiance is there. Matthew, in the middle of this biography, is issuing a warning of what's to come both within the confines of this book and beyond it, that what uh, what has happened to John will happen to Jesus, and what will happen to Jesus 
will happen to his apostles. And what will happen to his apostles will happen to his disciples down throughout the history of the church. And this is particularly pressing for us given the hostile, all or nothing, black and white, fundamentalist world in which we live. In which we live. And I use that f- word fundamentalism for both the right and the left. My friend Preston Sprinkle described it really well this way. He said, conservative fundamentalism is this. The inability to humbly listen to the other side, the other tribe, those you are told are the enemy, the posture of seeing the world in black and white, good people and bad people, and refusing to love your enemy. Progressive fundamentalism, see above. (laughs) Meaning, it's the same dang thing. And the way of Jesus is not fundamentalism, it's not conservatism, conservatism, and it's not fundamentalist secular progressivism. All of those things are the dominant views of the day, in particular fundamentalism on the right, fundamentalism on the left. But unlike the language of American culture, the way of Jesus is not hostile, not belligerent, not demanding, not coercive, not forceful, not self-righteous, not rude, but it is steady and assured, and that's enough. Believe me, that's enough. So if you decide to go with this following Jesus thing, there will be awkward conversations and you will be asked to choose sides and someone will decide that you are the them in an us versus them world. And tonight's text is kind of a warning of sorts. If you're in, really in, you will cause trouble. Even though it isn't prison or beheading for us, it is trouble But unlike John, we know the rest of the story. We don't follow Jesus because there will or won't be trouble. We follow Jesus because he really is the king. He's back from the dead. He's making everything new. And on a coming day, he will bring an end to suffering and evil and death once and for all. And on that day, in the language of the scriptures, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus truly is the king of the universe. So yeah, we'll be at odds <laughs> with the status quo. But what other way is there for us to deliver, for us to live? Jesus really is king. Now ours is a culture of conform or die on both sides, black and white, right and wrong side of history. Everything is that stark and that simplistic. And sometimes the way of Jesus will bring you favor in this world. And other times, people won't like it very much. (laughs) And that's okay. Tonight, my encouragement from the text is to embrace your status as as a misfit with quiet confidence. There's no uprising to join. There's no shouting match. There's no Facebook rant. There is just the road of discipleship and where it takes you, sometimes into favor and celebration and admiration, and other times into trouble. In either way, Jesus goes before you. Jesus did it first, and that makes the road worth walking. So with that in mind, let's pray and invite God's Spirit to come and speak. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.